Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, March 8th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer. He joins me today from the magazine's office in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So last week, Andrew, we talked about the business environment as publishers prepare to head to the London Book Fair, which opens next week. And generally, you told us the news was pretty good. Print sales are up again. Ebooks are stabilizing and audio is surging. So that's all the good news for the global book publishing world. But heading into London, there are some serious issues at hand politically and legislatively, which we will cover today. So let's open with, appropriately, the open access movement in scholarly publishing. Last week, the University of California announced it was terminating its subscription to Elsevier journals. Open access will be a major topic among publishers in London, don't you think? Absolutely. No question about it. In fact, in you know, 2019, I think, could be remembered as a watershed year for the transition to open access, which has been sort of lumbering along for decades. Uh, it's been making progress, but slow progress. Uh, but across the world, I think a clear message is now being sent uh, by academics and researchers who both produce and consume the content. And that message is we want open access and we want it, well, if not now, then pretty darn soon. So what do you make of the decision by the University of California to end their negotiations with the world's largest STM publisher, and that would be Elsevier? Yeah, so you know, I'm sure our listeners know by now that it was a major announcement at the end of last week that the University of California announced that after months of negotiations, it had decided to terminate its subscription to Elsevier's journals, about $11 million a year worth. Uh, UC officials said Elsevier was unwilling to meet UC's key goal in the negotiations, and that was securing open access to UC research, but also keeping costs down. Now, Elsevier is no stranger to tough negotiations. We've talked about it on this show quite a bit. They've frequently clashed over the years with university librarians and administrators and faculties over the high cost of access to scholarly journals. But you have to think that this time it just kind of feels different, right? In terminating its subscription, UC officials, they're not just haggling over price, uh, but they're actually staking out a very bold position in support of open access. For their part, Elsevier officials expressed disappointment that the UC system had, and I'll quote them here, broken off negotiations unilaterally, and they expressed hope that the two sides would soon come together and bridge the divide. Uh, and in a letter that Elsevier sent to UC-based editors of Elsevier journals, Elsevier said they'd put together what they thought was, was a pretty good deal. It's sort of a read and publish deal, as they're called, uh, and they thought that this might actually get the job done. Now, a read and publish deal essentially allows for an institution to pay a single price, usually a pretty large fee, for both access to that publisher's content, but also to allow their researchers to publish open access without paying author processing charges in those publishers' journals. But in an explainer that came out uh, after we went to uh, put the show down last week, you see officials said that uh, the deal Elsevier had proposed would have cost them 80% more over three years. So is it a big move for UC to make this stance for open access? Absolutely. I think it sends a huge message globally that you know, UC is standing up for open access. And UC is a huge player. Uh, according to their own study, UC research accounts for about 10% of all U.S. publishing output. That's a pretty big chunk. But, you know, it's unclear how the negotiations between UC and Elsevier are going to continue. 
uh, how they're going to get things back online or what, for that matter, you see researchers are going to do in terms of accessing Elsevier content, which I assume a number of them need to do to do their jobs. Uh, but for now, the UC community appears united and committed to holding this line on open access. Uh, the Faculty Senate there issued a statement in support of the university's position to break off negotiations with Elsevier. The university administrators have also issued their support. But at the end of the day, you got to think, you know, as one observer pointed out to me, this all comes down to money, right? You know, Elsevier has always been happy to publish things for open access, uh, explained Brandon Butler, who is the director of information policy at the University of Virginia. And one of the people I like to talk to about these things. And Brandon added that UC's decision to walk away from its subscription deal was not just about pushing an away agenda, but about exploding subscription costs. And that's a concern that all universities and research institutions share. And it's that dynamic, I think, around unsustainable prices where the breaking point is going to really be for more university libraries, more so than any hypothetical flipped open access. Uh, as Brandon said, libraries are tired of giving their budgets away to Elsevier. And while libraries would prefer to support open access, there still really is no consensus about what open access looks like. In Europe, at least, uh, Plan S is a bold plan by a number of major private and national funders to make open access a reality, and they would do it as early as next year, 2020. Do you think the UC decision bolsters that movement? Yeah, I, I do. I, you know, it's hard to say if the UC decision actually bolsters the open access movement worldwide because it's a pretty big movement. But I think the message that UC is sending certainly doesn't hurt. As the world's largest scientific publisher, Elsevier especially has to be paying attention to what UC is doing. You know, in day one of our show dailies, uh, Copyright Clearance Center's own Roy Kaufman has a really thoughtful piece on what he sees ahead for open access. And he, as always, makes some really cogent points on Plan S, for example, which is, of course, the controversial plan that does seek to establish open access in the EU by 2020, which is right around the corner. Plan S, of course, he notes, would actually put more pressure on small publishers than it would on publishers like Elsevier's because society publishers and mission-based publishers, they have different priorities. They have fewer journals over which to spread costs. They have less negotiating power over vendors. So, you know, uh, some of the things that Plan S would put forth might actually make it harder for smaller publishers and might actually work to the benefit of a company like Elsevier in the long run. But, you know, here's the message that I think is being sent. Yes, Plan S is not perfect. I think that is something that, you know, we've heard now. Uh, no UC, the University of California, doesn't know what it's going to do without Elsevier. But those are just details. You know, the time for open access is now. That's the message I'm getting loud and clear. Uh, you know, let's just get there. We'll sort out the rest as we go. Uh, that's my growing feeling of what's happening in the OA movement. And it's going to be interesting to hear in London if that's the message the publishers are getting, too. When Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese considers where it leaves publishing when the United Kingdom leaves the European Union. I'm Christopher Keneally. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash PW Insider or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes.
I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, March 8th, 2019, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each week with news and analysis from the world of publishing. And Andrew, you and I will travel next week to the London Book Fair, landing in an England that will still be part of the European Union, though for how much longer isn't clear. A major European copyright revision, the single copyright framework for a digital single market, will soon come to a final vote before the European Parliament. As often is the case, though, a tough political battle has broken out. Yeah, that's right. It's like it seems like SOPA all over again. If you remember the protest that happened over SOPA, and I have to say, it could get very, very difficult before it's all over in Europe. In fact, there's a huge protest uh, that's scheduled across Europe for March 23rd, uh, and I think you're going to see many, many thousands of people taking to the streets to stop a copyright bill from going through, which is sort of amazing, right? When have we seen people ever in the streets anywhere over a copyright bill? And before we get to why, I just want to talk about the optics and the politics around this this European copyright bill. And first, because the EU vote is set for late March, possibly early April, but all signs are, are that it will happen in late March. And what's interesting about that is that the EU parliamentary elections are right around the corner in May. And with this copyright bill being really hugely unpopular with, with, you know, according to public polls and with the public, there's a public online petition, in fact, that has, I think, more than 6 million signatures, which some people say make it the largest petition ever, though I don't know how you would actually measure that these days. But you also have people now taking to the streets in this protest, and you have to wonder how many EU reps who are up for re-election are going to have second thoughts about voting yes on this copyright bill, because it's a bill that you know, no one really seems to like very much. You know, there was an interview recently in another publishing-related magazine, which didn't really ask a lot of tough questions about the copyright bill, just sort of let the, gave the person a platform. But the spokesperson supporting the law basically kept saying, well, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. It's progress. But, you know, it's not perfect, which isn't exactly a, the kind of ringing endorsement you're looking for before you're going to a, a huge vote. <laughs> and, you know, when your constituents are marching in the streets and you're hedging on sort of the whether or not the bill is good, well, it kind of looks like trouble to me. Well, let's look at some of the troubling parts of the bill then, Andrew. Um, those would be Articles 11 and 13. Tell us what they are and why they are so controversial for many. Right. So quickly, the bill's two most controversial articles are Article 11, which has been called the publisher's right by supporters and the link tax to those opposed. And basically, Article 11 seeks to see the publishers would be compensated for content that was shared online via you know, platforms like Facebook or YouTube or sites that aggregate articles like Google News. Article 13 is proving to be even more controversial. And that would force basically, so opponents say, would force internet platforms to sort of use uh, copyright filters to check for copyright infringement for user uploaded content. Uh, you know, there's some disagreement as to whether that would mean automatic filters or how those filters would work. But uh, yes, indeed, it definitely seems to be setting up a situation where copyrighted content would be filtered online. And that's always been a controversial and difficult topic to broach. Now, why? Because, well, these are hard things to balance. We're balancing the internet age, right? It's, it's very difficult to do. And we've said it a million times on this show. It's difficult for automatic filters and artificial intelligence to make smart copyright decisions about what's fair use or free speech or parody. And also the messaging from the opponents is very good. Break the internet, right? That's a phrase we hear all the time. We heard it back in SOPA. And that's a phrase you can remember. <laughs> Whether or not it's true is another thing, but it certainly sticks 
with people who are taking a position on the issue. Now, we'll get too much into this, into, into Articles 11 and 13, uh, but you have to remember what happened with SOPA back in 2012. And there was definitely an issue there with the sense that, you know, this was competing corporate interests, that the, the, the public's interests were not being represented in the bill. And I think that's kind of the message that's being put forth here in Europe. Uh, and if you doubt that's true, you can look at how much money corporations are putting into this copyright battle and how little the public has really been engaged with it up until this rally coming up. But I'll also say this, Europe is trying. You know, I, I have to give them credit for this, right? The GDP, the GDPR, for example, went into effect last year. You know, we're having a debate about copyright in the digital age in Europe. So what's going on there is far from perfect. There's going to be some mistakes. There's going to be some tough political battles. But I have to say they're wrestling with the issues. Uh, indeed, a great deal is happening in Europe when it comes to digital networks and online platforms. Well, by contrast, here in the U.S., uh, not terribly much is going on at all. In your London show dailies, you have an interview with former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler. He has a book to promote. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, Tom Wheeler, who uh, whose FCC actually codified net neutrality, by the way, only to see it repealed by the Trump administration. That was back in 2015 when they codified uh, net neutrality protections. But Tom Wheeler does have a new book coming out in April, and I can't recommend it enough. It should be required reading. Uh, it's called From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. It's from the Brookings Institution, and it really nicely covers about 500 years of network revolutions. And you can read the whole interview with Tom Wheeler on the PW website. It'll be available next week for free on the PW site. But I want to point out just like two things that we talked about that Tom and I talked about that I found very interesting. You know, one is that Tom holds that digital information is the quote capital asset of the 21st century and that we have no choice but to establish policies for the use of that asset, especially when it comes to personal information. And he says, we must do it with dispatch. You know, the dominant digital companies of today, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, are converting our private information into their corporate asset. And currently, they're getting to make the rules in their own interest, Tom says. But it's essential that the people's representatives step up and establish some rules in the public's interest. Uh, he also you know, goes back into history and writes about early networks, like, for example, the railroads and the telegraph, and how those inventions sort of led to monopolies like Standard Oil and Carnegie Steel. And of course, we know how that story ends, right? The question is, will we see uh, that kind of antitrust action again? And Wheeler says yes, but that antitrust is not a panacea. He believes that we should pursue all available remedies, including reestablishing antitrust vigilance, but also regulatory oversight. So the history of network revolutions, he says, is this history of economic and social upheaval. And he makes a very good case for what we're going to be seeing in the future and why that history is going to continue. He also points out why we're seeing the sort of political upheaval that we're seeing now. You know, working through the kinds of issues that we're going through now in a democracy takes time. And as individuals and institutions are impacted by this new technology and liberal democratic capitalism's appears to be slow to respond, the political impetus, he says, is to look for quick solutions. And we see this now manifested in the rise of authoritarianism around Europe. We have Brexit. We have Donald Trump. But there's a measure of hope. It's not as if we haven't seen this before, Wheeler says. At the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, uh, the rules that had worked for agrarian mercantilism were no longer adequate. And the result was antitrust legislation and consumer and worker protection laws that sort of established guardrails on the excesses of capitalism. Wheeler says we are at a very similar moment today. 
Andrew, you and I began talking about Brexit on this show in 2016 at the London Book Fair, just weeks before the referendum on whether to remain or leave for the UK. Uh, that would be, of course, remain or leave the European Union. Three years later, Brexit is now weeks away. What's your sense of how publishers in the UK are feeling about it? I think they're feeling anxious, clearly very anxious. And, and I'll go back to your colleague, Roy Kaufman, who in his piece also shared some thoughts on Brexit. You know, as we head to London this year, it's no longer unimaginable to think that there actually might be a second referendum on whether to stay or leave the EU. In fact, that now even seems likely because British lawmakers are, are kind of frightened of leaving the EU without a deal, a so-called hard Brexit, as they call it. Nevertheless, as Roy points out, the other likely scenario is that we're going to have a hard Brexit. And as Roy notes, for publishers, a hard Brexit would mean a massive reduction in the ability to recruit talent and really severe short-term market challenges. And these are things that we've been hearing at the London Book Fair for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, Brexit could seriously impair the UK publishing industry. It could incentivize expansion into continental Europe. Uh, another point that Roy makes very good in order to take better advantage of EU labor and other markets. But if there is a second referendum and it's looking like that just might happen, the outcome would almost certainly be to reverse course away from Brexit. And let me tell you, if that was to be the case, it would be great news for publishers. Well, Andrew, I'm afraid it's time for you and I to leave. Listeners, that is, though our exit is only for this week. We return next Friday reporting from the London Book Fair. Thanks for joining me today and see you at Olympia Hall. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, for what seems like forever, book authors and their publishers have treated Hollywood as a glorified cash machine. As book sales languish, especially adult fiction, authors and publishers must wonder, if not from Hollywood, then where will the next generation of readers come from? Porter Anderson, editor-in-chief at Publishing Perspectives, says streaming services like Netflix and Hulu may provide the answer, bringing more digital life and profit to publishers' lists. The message for this year to our publishers is first, get yourself a producer. Find somebody that you like, somebody whose work you like. Get very close and keep that person really close and be really nice to that person. Because as we know, it's a production company that takes a property into a studio. Um, you don't, unless you're in a very strong position, you don't just walk right into 21st Century Fox and tell them, I've got what you need. You actually uh, get to Ridley Scott and his production company walks it in because he knows what they need. The Race to the Streamers, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. Mm -hmm.